And boom, we're back for another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winter, and I'm here as always with Dr. Bear Paul Lando coming to you live and direct from the beautiful Smith River up here in the great state of Jefferson, where freedom still reigns supreme. We are so happy to be here as Christmas is just days away and we have a blizzard coming. <laughs> we may very well have a white Christmas bear, which is exciting for my kiddos because living in this, uh, in, you know, basically Northern California, Southern Oregon, we don't get a lot of snow. And so um, I know for some folks on the other parts of the country, they're rolling their eyes like, oh man, uh, please no more snow. Uh, but for us, it's really exciting. And to have a white Christmas was always my dream as a SoCal kid. So I'm really looking forward to hopefully uh, doing a little sledding and skiing. Uh, Mount Shasta, we talked about in the last one with Renette Sinem, is open and cranking away. And that's one of my favorite mountains to go ski. So um, looking to do that uh, next week after Christmas. So, yeah, uh, it was coming down hard last night. Woke me up in the middle of the night. It was like God was dragging a bag of rocks across my roof. And it was just rumbling and, and, and wild. So um, we got a lot of weather coming and um, it's going to be uh, an interesting Christmas. Uh, but hey, everyone, welcome. We have the great Joel Salatin on with us today. Couldn't be more excited to have this gentleman on with us. Uh, it is uh, he's one of my favorites out there. And this is uh, going to be quite a treat. want to thank everybody that joined us for Reunion Summit. Uh, that was, or excuse me, the event reunion summit was the one before, uh, Joel was in on the event, uh, with Zach Bush and that was an amazing talk. Uh, and you can find out all about that at the event.global bear had an intimate, uh, uh, little, almost like a short film of him at the guard alphabetic gardens, uh, with Josh Del Sol. And, uh, that was, uh, really interesting. We got to see bear in his element. That was a fantastic watch. For those who missed that, who are fans of AlphaCast, you want to go see that. Um, it is an amazing video. It's about 45 minutes long of Bear ruminating in his, his kitchen and out in the gardens with Josh, covering everything from Wilhelm Reich to, to consciousness to free energy. A really fascinating talk. So definitely catch that. Um, so today, without further ado, uh, we've got the great... Joel Salatin with us to develop environmentally, economically, and emotionally enhancing agricultural prototypes and facilitate their duplication throughout the world is what Joel's all about. He calls himself a Christian, libertarian, environmentalist, capitalist, lunatic farmer, right up our alley. And others um, who like him call him the most famous farmer in the world, the high priest of the pasture, and the most eclectic thinker from Virginia since Thomas Jefferson. Those who don't like him call him a bioterrorist, typhoid, Mary, charlatan, and starvation advocate. With a room full of debate trophies from high school and college days, 12 published books, and a thriving multi-generational family farm, he draws on a lifetime of food, farming, and fantasy to entertain and inspire audiences around the world. He's as comfortable moving cows in a pasture as addressing CEOs in a Wall Street business conference. His wide-ranging topics include nitty-gritty how-to for profitable regenerative farming, as well as cultural philosophy like orthodoxy versus heresy. A wordsmith and master communicator, he moves audiences from laughs one minute to tears the next, from frustration to 
hopefulness, which we need more than ever. Uh, he co-owns with his family, Polyface Farm in Swoop, Virginia, featured in the New York Times bestseller, Omnivore's D Dilemma, and the award-winning documentary, Food, Inc. Uh, when he's not on the road speaking, he's at home on the farm, keeping the calluses on his hands and dirt under his fingernails, mentoring young people, inspiring visitors, and promoting local regenerative food and farming systems. Dr. Barilano, this is a man after our own heart. Absolutely. I uh, relate on, uh, to you on so many levels, Joel. It's, uh, it's really going to be a fun chat here today. And um, thank you. Thank you for making the time. I know you're a busy man. And, uh, you know, we live on a, a farm of our own here. So it's, uh, it's not something you ever take time off. You know, you get up early, uh, even in the winter here, we're out early in the, in the pouring rain this morning, you know, tending the chickens and all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, we haven't had the opportunity to talk and, uh, you know, my uh, route to farming full time, which I've done for the last 15 years, was actually through medicine. And, uh, you know, one day I kind of got the bright idea that you can't have healthy bodies without healthy agriculture. And uh, in fact, um, you know, I was also able to uh, prove, you know, through my own practice, through uh, testing procedures with laboratory medicine and other technologies that there's an actual resonance that happens between ourselves and the uh, external ecosystem. You know, it's made available with microbes, mycelium, inorganic elements in the soil. And boy, when you disrupt that, you know, there's, there's no way you're going to have healthy bodies. You can't have one without the other. So, so now I'm a full-time farmer and that's why I enjoy your message so much. And, uh, you know, if I had my way here today, I'd just do a straight shop talk with you, but we need to open this up to the general audience that are non-farmers. So, um, you know, maybe uh, a good place to start is a while ago, Mike and I did a podcast just on the agrarian origins of our country and why the founders of our country were mostly farmers and how they equated stewardship of the land with freedom. And I think with what we see in the world going on today, where a lot of people are starting to wake up to what our founders always knew. So, um, Joel, thanks so much for, for being here again. And, um, you know, we can start off with that or maybe just a, a, a little short cliff notes for the, most of our audience knows you. But for maybe some of those that are new, just how you got into this and, and then we can get into some of those other topics. Sure. Well, yeah, the the uh, the historical underpinnings of our country, uh, you know, those of us who are over whatever, you know, uh, 45, uh, remember <laughs> growing up with the uh, phrase manifest destiny, you know, and and, uh, you know, the, the great the great uh, uh, hope of this of this country was that any man could own some land. You know, you couldn't do that in Europe where you had royalty and you had a, a um, you know, land was not something that anybody could acquire you had to you had to uh, birth it or or have some sort of a special royal uh, royal disp, you know uh, dispensation and um so so the the land ethic in america is really ingrained in our dna it was it was part and parcel of our freedom that a person here could come and, and when ben franklin was uh was ambassador to, uh, to to France, and he was in Paris. Uh, he wrote actually a lot about what I mean, you know, because he was uh, he was a man of letters, and and of course, you know, everybody thinks that he was the and he was he was he was truly a 
a, a wonderful uh, spokesperson for, for the, um, the, the equal opportunity, uh, not equality, but equal opportunity that this land afforded, that, that even a peasant could come, even an indentured servant could come work off, you know, three or four years of the indentureship, the ship passage. And, and before you know it, he's actually got a, you know, got a grub stake and a, a, a place that he actually owns. And, um, and it was, uh, it, it was foundational to the, to the, to the country. And so, uh, so our, our, our love affair, you know, with the land is, is real and certainly part of our, part of our DNA. Uh, uh, unfortunately, um, a lot of the land uh, or the farming techniques and protocols that we brought uh, did not did not appreciate climatic and, and climatic differences here in this country. You know, most of the Europeans who came here were from very temperate uh, areas. You know, Germany and Scotland, Ireland, England, uh, where it, it, there's a Netherlands, a Dutch, a lot of rainfall. Um, and, and so, you know, as you come here, uh, we don't live in a one misty, moisty morning when foggy was the weather, you know, uh, uh, here, even in Virginia, where the first toehold was uh, here, you know, we, we kind of, we, we say in the summer, we're always one, you know, one thunderstorm away from a drought, and the rain comes in torrents. Um, and, and in the winter, of course, it, it, it freezes and, and uh, heaves and thaws. So agronomically, uh, it was a quite a different context than what they uh, left in Europe. And rather than sitting down with the Native Americans, for example, and asking, well, you know, how do you maintain this abundant landscape? Like the, 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 thing that, the thing that I think it's important for us to appreciate today is that, uh, that archeologically now, we, we know way more than we did when I was in elementary school. And uh, one of the things that we know is that North America actually produced more food 500 years ago than it does today. Wow. And, and, and the Europeans, rather than asking the natives, so how do you do that? You know, how does that, how does that abundance work? Instead, they transformed the, they transferred the plow drainage and, and, uh, and monocropping here um, to a less hospitable mm -hmm a less hospitable uh, soil environment than, than uh, they'd had in Europe. And so the degradation here happened uh, pretty quickly. And, um, and so, you know, one of, so, so when we came here to our farm uh, and it was a gullied worn out rock pile in 1961, our question was, well, um, throughout the centuries of history, how did nature how did nature build soil? Uh, how, how did nature create this abundance? And it's really not a very long list, you know. Uh, um, there are, you know, nature is primarily uh, devoted to perennials, not annuals. So perennials are, are plants that, you know, you don't have to plant every year as opposed to annuals, which are all the grains and all that. Um, and of course, when the Europeans grain, you know, grain was the holy grail, you know, it was the uh, it's been the Holy Grail for a long, long time because it was arduous to grow, hard to store, um, hard to keep, and it was very, very expensive. In fact, it was so expensive, you certainly couldn't feed it to chickens and pigs. And, and so chickens, the omnivores on the, on the early farmstead were, were salvage operations. You know, they, they picked up, you know, uh, uh, spoiled milk. They picked up the, uh, you know, the uh, spoiled vegetables. 
kitchen scraps and things like that. Uh, so it was the herbivore, the, the, the land, the sheep and the cow. Those were the two peasant foods um, that, that were a lot cheaper uh, because you didn't have to, you didn't have to grow grain to feed them. You know, they were, they, they could grow on, on, uh, on just perennial biomass, you know, grass. Um, and so we looked around, we said, okay, so, so nature's primarily perennials. Uh, another thing is that, that there's no animalless agriculture. Animals are a critical point, a critical part of, of um, fertility, fertility, uh, uh, democracy to move, uh, you know, to move biomass around through manure, through their feet. And, and, and wings, um, you know, from, from fertile valleys to infertile uh, ridgetops and slopes. There's no way for nature to defy gravity in the, in, the, uh, in the gravitational move of biomass and minerals, except with animals. So animals fill this, this tremendous function in nature uh, of, of, of spreading around the, the biomass and the, and the solar energy that, you know, that, that's in the biomass. Um, uh, carbon, you know, carbon doesn't go very far, you know, it didn't go, uh, if a cow ate, if, if a bison ate here and pooped over there, you know, it, it wasn't that far away. A bird, you know, would poop nearby where it ate a seed or a worm or something. So the whole, the whole uh, uh, fertility cycle was pretty much in situ. It, 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 it didn't, it didn't move around the planet uh, and certainly not from, you know, from large area to, to area. Um, uh, you know, and, and animals moved. They didn't stay stationary. They weren't in, you know, confinement factories. They, they actually uh, moved around. And so, so you had that element. And um, so anyway, you know, as, as we started looking at this template, you know, that's kind of where we, where we started with the farm here to try to uh, see if we could, if we could rectify um, roughly three to five feet of topsoil loss that had occurred, you know, since the Europeans came and started plowing it all up and and uh, and destroying everything. Yeah, well, that that's a great summary of everything, and um, kind of brings us into factory farming and all the things that are causing our ills today. But you know, Europe was under the same predicament uh, well over a hundred years ago, and um, brought in, uh, you know, one of the the great minds of their time, Rudolf Steiner, and he instituted his uh, what's now known as biodynamic farming techniques, which uh, is identical to what you're describing there as far as, uh, you know, creating a, a full circle loop between animals and agriculture. And, and so, um, you know, there's been folks that figured it out and, and sure enough, it restored their agriculture there because they were on the verge of famine. Well, absolutely. And, uh, and a lot of people don't realize that, you know, our country went through the same thing. I mean, if you, if you read, um, if you read uh, uh, Taylor, um, who was a contemporary of Thomas Jefferson, and, uh, um, you know, I mean, he, he wrote about, we have exhausted our soils, you know, this was in 1800, right? And, um, and in fact, when they found the, uh, the the booby and pelican manure on the islands off the coast of Peru, uh, in in just what had taken literally you know millennia to accumulate there, uh, using Chinese slave labor, uh, they actually with steamboats um, uh, mined off mined off with with shovels by hand in 20 years from about from about 18, 1820 to eighteen forty, um, took all of that that guano, that accumulated uh, 
a cormorant, booby, and pelican, I think were the three birds, all that accumulated guano and, and transported mainly to the U.S. and to England. And there was a, uh, there, there was a, a, a dearth uh, of, of answers, um, uh, you know, in, in 1837, when Justice von Liebig uh, did his vacuum tube experiments and, um, and brought to the world the notion that all, all living things, plants and animals are simply rearrangements of nitrogen, potassium and phosphorus um, and, and launched the kind of the chemical uh, fertilization. You know, he, he, was, he was looking for answers. He, he wasn't, um, you know, he wasn't looking to try to, you know, uh, chemicalize the world or, 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 or you know, um, uh, that sort of thing. He was, he was simply looking for answers. And so, um, so, you know, so here we were with this, with this uh, uh, you know, problem of fertility and we didn't actually have the, the mechanisms um, uh, you know, in place. You know, when Jefferson wrote his farm book, um, Thomas Jefferson, he wrote this wonderful farm book and he, um, throughout the book, he complains about things. He complains about not being able to get water, not being able to control the animals, uh, not being able to develop fertility and, um, and I, I actually uh, spoke at Monticello several years ago to their annual, uh, uh, kind of their annual shindig of all the Monticello uh, supporters. And, uh, and, and my speech was, uh, uh, hey, Tom, guess what we've got now? You know, and it was, it was basically, I took, I took every one of his frustrations and explained how modern technology has, has given us an answer for these things. Uh, and, and it's truly, you know, it's, it's truly remarkable. We live in a great time. Uh, but, but unfortunately, we in agriculture, instead of taking our technology and coming alongside nature as a partner, we came along as if we were in the, uh, you know, world wrestling, <laughs> the professional wrestling league and tried to do a, a smackdown of nature instead of a massage of nature. And, um, and, and hence, we've gotten into our factory farms. We've gotten a, a dead zone the size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico. We're, we're desertifying as fast, faster than any country on the planet, uh, depleting our aquifers. And our nutrient density of our food is, is lower than any other uh, country in the world. Uh, in fact, it should give us all pause that with 5% five, with, uh, 5 of the world's population, we have something like 40% of the COVID cases. Our, 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 immune, our immune systems uh, are, are collapsing in this country. Um, you know, male sperm counts are, are plummeting so much that now uh, big businesses are actually doing, um, uh, you know, sperm banks on young employees so that they'll still have, they, they can still have children after they're 35. Uh, you know, you don't see that in Africa. You don't see that in, uh, you know, in Indochina or the Far East or anything. And so, so the, the fact that, that America is known for McDonald's means that America is also known for cancer, heart disease, um, uh, you know, high blood pressure and COVID. Yeah, and that's exactly what got me into agriculture. And, and you know, I remember not just in my lifetime, uh, you know, you could get pregnant in a swimming pool <laughs> and during my pregnant, yeah. uh, pre uh, pregnant years, you're, 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 my you're clinic pregnant. years, <laughs> while my wife was pregnant, during my <laughs> clinic years, I had all these young couples that just just couldn't do it anymore. And I'm like, what the heck is going on there? 
So right. uh, we've come a long ways in the wrong direction, just, uh, you know, just in a short time. But, uh, you know, to leave it on a positive note, there are the resurrection of a lot of very, very old school understandings and technologies that are emerging. And I'd like to talk maybe a little bit about water. And I enjoyed your video on water that I saw, I think, with the Fit Farmer. Uh, it was a great little video. And, um, you know, we, we live in an area where there's uh, an abundance of water. In fact, sometimes there's too much. The problem we have here is I pump it out of the river. It takes my generator and then I pump it all the way up the hill in the holding tanks and then it gravity feeds, you know, where we farm and live. So uh, just this last season, we started digging our first pond and I was very interested uh, to hear how you were kind of sealing the pond, you know, with the use of animals. Um, uh, we're also going to a lot of rain catchment systems and, and just more passive things. So we're less relying on those fossil fuels. We're also incorporating some uh, flow techniques developed by uh, Victor Schauberger, which can actually uh, take unmechanized water up against gradients. So uh, we have kind of uh, some hopes with that. Uh, now with our pond, you know, we just sat here, we're in a new uh, farm here. You know, we developed another area for about 10 years and we've only been in this one five years because, um, you know, we just needed a bigger space to do what we're doing here. So where our pond was, we just uh, watched, you know, where the water naturally drains. So we said, yeah, that's a good place to dig it. I did some soil testing. There's a lot of good natural clay. Uh, but since we don't have the animals that you have, uh, you know, we are supplementing the soil with a little extra uh, clay, you know, to seal because we don't want plastic fillers and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, water is is obviously uh, what gives everything life. So anything maybe we could have in a water discussion. Sure. Well, I think I think the most important thing to realize, I think you need to start with the availability of water um yeah i'm a i'm a pond i'm a pond lover i i um generally when you say let's get water people think let's drill a well but the problem is that a well is um a it's opaque you can't see it you don't know uh where it is uh how much it is are, are you helping it hurting it uh you don't know about your pump you know is your pump working or not or are there pesticides going into it you can't control a lot of things and so so uh Punching holes in the aquifer, I think, needs to be kind of a last resort uh, uh, for, for water, although in our country, that's the first resort. So the, in my view, um, uh, this is, this is a, you know, a really foundational discussion. One of the reasons for our mechanical and intellectual ability as humans, what, what, what do we bring to the ecology? Well, we bring, um, you know, we bring the ability to massage the, the ecology into you know, uh, more abundance than it could even by itself. One of, the, one of, that, one of those uh, ideas is water impoundment. Um, and so you know, uh, 500 years ago, North America was over 8% water. 8% of the surface area of North America was, was water. Today, it's less than 4%. Um, and that was you know, before the big, that was before, um, you know, uh, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers and excavation equipment. Well, where did all that water come from? It was beaver ponds. There were 200 million beavers here that were, you know, building all these, uh, all these, all these ponds. And so uh, my, my belief as a steward is that rather than deplete the commons, 
I want to increase the commons. As part of my being here, I want to increase the commons. The aquifer, an aquifer is the commons. You know, you didn't put it there. Um, you know, it's not really yours. It might, it might be under your land, but it's not, you don't really own it because it seeps in, you know, water is, is ubiquitous everywhere. But if you own a piece of property and uh, a permaculture style, um, permaculture style, one of the ideas is you want to, you want to hold raindrops where they drop for as long as possible, because the longer you hold raindrops where they drop, the where they fall, the, the, the more can be done with it on their on their way as they gravitationally move back toward the ocean or, or you know, go through evapotranspiration back up into the clouds or whatever they're going to be up into a leaf or whatever. So 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 fundamentally, what we want to do is hold raindrops where they fall as long as possible. And so uh, one of the ways to do that, of course, is with dense vegetation so that when the when the raindrop actually hits the ground, it hits it as a mist and not as this little you know bomb that that that, uh, that caps and destroys the the soil surface um and and of course then the the, the next way of course is with 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 ponds uh, we can do the beavers one better the beavers always uh put dams on on you know streams and flowing water but with excavation equipment today we can put ponds where there isn't even any water flowing just in a, in a valley as you said go out in a, in a rainy time and look where the water runs well how much water runs there as a global rule of thumb one third of all raindrops in any given area it doesn't matter whether you're in arizona or or in uh oregon or or east west whatever um, globally, as a general rule, one third of raindrops run off the surface. Um, that can be because they either come too fast for absorption or, too, or, or that things are already saturated and the, and the ground can't hold anymore. I mean, there, there's, there's any number of things. But the point is that one acre inch, one acre inch of water is 30,000 gallons. So 30,000 gallons for one acre inch. So if you're in a, if you're in a 30 inch rainfall area, which is probably, you know, if you're looking for an average in North America, 30 inches would probably be about it. Um, if you're in a 30 inch rainfall area, one third of that is 10 inches per year. So 10 inches per year at 30,000 gallons, that means in just one acre, you're generating 300,000 gallons of water per acre per <laughs> that's a lot of water all right 300,000 gallons and if you have five acres it'd be 1.5 million gallons okay what I'm trying what, what I try to get people to understand when I start talking about water like this is to understand the, the sheer volume of the resource you know, we, we think about rain, we look at our little rain gauge, whatever, and we just don't realize, but I can tell you, urban, urban engineers think about this all the time with flood control, drainage systems, and believe me, they make these calculations all the time because they're dealing with a lot of impermeable, you know, impermeable surface area where they've got to deal with this water. And so when you've got to, when you've got to drain off, you know, in, in a one inch rain, you've got to drain off 30,000 gallons uh, per acre, and you're dealing with a with a 10 acre area in one hour. Um, you know, in one hour, you've got to drain off, you know, 300,000 gallons. You got to get that in a in a pretty big pipe. But out here in the country, where we're trying to uh, uh, conserve water, save water, 
it, it shows how much water generates on just one acre or five acres or 10 acres. It doesn't take a very big watershed. You don't have to have a, a hundred acre watershed to be able to fill a, you know, a, a good sized pond. Now on pond building, I'm a big believer in many small rather than one large. Um, and I mean, this can be a discussion about duplication rather than centralization. Uh, small is beautiful, you know, Buckminster Fuller. But um, uh, the, the point is that many small, many small ponds uh, give you, you know, less, uh, less risk of, of, uh, of failure, uh, all sorts of, you know, all sorts of things. And, and you can and build them incrementally. You don't have to build your one great big once in a lifetime pond at once. You can start, you know, with a small one and you get a little more money, you build another, one, you get a little more money, you build another one. And eventually you have this labyrinth that this, this ladder effect uh, of ponds across the landscape, which by the way, are not stealing the neighbor's water. As long as you're not damming up a spring or a stream or a creek or a river, if you're just, if you're just putting a, um, a a dam across a valley, a, a dry, you know, a dry valley, then what that means is when you, when you dam up, when you stop that water, you're only stopping surface runoff. And if you're only stopping surface runoff, by definition, you are not hoarding water or denying anybody else water. All you're doing is reducing flooding downstream. If you start impounding non-surface runoff, you know, if you start pumping from an aquifer in a well, or if you start pulling from the spring, then you are actually depleting the commons and depleting the groundwater. But if, if you, if you simply impound surface runoff, you're simply taking excess. When, when, when the ecological cup is full and running over, you're simply catching what comes out the lip and you're holding that for future use. That is not, that is not hoarding. That is simply uh, being a, a, a blessing to people downriver to reduce flooding, and 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 also people downriver when there's a drought that your pond is continuing to evaporate, create clouds, uh, uh, you know, gradually seep into the into the groundwater, and if you use it for irrigation or other purposes, it you know it it, it gradually moves down downstream in a drought and and, and blesses. What we call base flow, it, it it helps to maintain base flow in the landscape. So uh, there's a lot of water. Our, our problem is not is, is not a lack of water. Our weak link uh, is 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 constipation of imagination. <laughs> you know, to to understand to understand how much there is, and uh, and creatively capture it in these gentle you know these gentle landscape massages to um you know to caress our partner this way yeah I, i'd love for you to have a long discussion with some of our bureaucrats up here in oregon that are actually <laughs> arresting farmers for building ponds and catching yeah. runoff off the roofs yeah yeah imagine it's, that oh it's it's a huge issue i run into it up in especially you know in the west i, I just did a i just did a um a consult job on a ranch in montana a guy had bought a ranch in montana he had me come out and spent a couple of days going over it and, you know, laying out, you know, lanes and brainstorming on, on landscape design. And he had a couple of ponds. One was, one was leaking. Um, and, and uh, interestingly, uh, he, he, he had along with me, he had brought a water expert, a guy that's, he's a landscape architect 
and does, you know, does water development in the state. And of course, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, real, real knowledgeable about water policy in Montana, but, but I was amazed to find out that anyone can go out and, um, and every, every, um, oh, what was it? Uh, there, I'm thinking it was an area, something like once every 25 acres, once every 25 acres, you can punch in a well in the aquifer with no permit, no, no, no licensing, no nothing. But you can't build a pond the size of a bathtub without a license. And I just, I just could hardly wrap my head around that. Uh, it, it, it's as if, it's as if, if you can't see it, it's free. And if you can see it and measure it, then it's, then um, it needs to be regulated. In other words, since the water in the aquifer, since you couldn't see it and couldn't measure it, well, then, you know, it was anybody's free game. You could use as much as you wanted to, but if you could, if you had actually caught surface runoff and, and, and protected it, um, then suddenly, you know, that, that was, uh, that was illegal. I, I just, it was, it was beyond my belief, but, I, but I know that exists in, you know, many areas out there. California is the same way. And, uh, and it has created a lot of the, um, a lot of the desertification and the aquifer depletion that's currently happening in the dry areas of, of the country, Colorado, Nevada, um, you know, Arizona, all of these areas suffer from that basic mindset that the aquifer's fair game, but raindrops aren't. And then meanwhile, look what fracking's doing to the aquifer. Well, yeah. Literally poisoning it, you know. Sure. It's, it's wild. My neighbor has a rain catchment tanks and he had uh, one of the feds from the uh, forest service across the river um, somehow caught wind, came on his property. I think illegally, I don't know, and left a note saying you got to disconnect that um, the rain catchment tanks. So now we are like criminals hiding and um, to just do permaculture on our land, um, doing rain catchment here in California. Now, of course, I think a pond makes a lot more sense than the tanks because ecologically you're now creating a micro ecological system on your land, right? Where you're bringing in more flora, you're bringing in more animals, uh, you're creating an environment that is more beneficial for the landscape. So I am looking to put a small pond in my little food forest out here, very small, uh, 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 a 20th of an acre if that, um, mm. but I, just to start, and then I want to do some swales that kind of feed from there. And my question is, how do you, so obviously some concerns with some, some concerns with ponds and I know bear and I've talked about it with mosquitoes, with, um, with, uh, concerns about, you know, uh, well, mainly for me, mosquitoes. So I guess putting mosquito fish in, in their help, but also, um, I'm not on a hill. I don't have ability to drive the water down through swales. So I'm, my, our issue here is we get a lot of rainfall. Like we had 185 inches my first year here in the winter. And then it's just completely arid and no rain for four months. And my concern is, well, the, keeping that pond vital during the hot season, but then also being able to use that to properly, um, <clears throat> you know, use that for my food forest through the summer when I don't want to have to water um, from the the city water, so yeah, there's a lot of problems with with that. And where a tank, I can, I, I feel like I can moderate that easier if I have them in holding tanks. So yeah, I don't know. yeah, uh, uh, several little things come to mind. If I could speak into that, please. Uh, one one is that um, 
unfortunately, the U.S. does not have a cistern, uh, a, a healthy cistern economy. In Australia, in Australia, where everybody has a cistern. I mean, in the big cities, everybody, everybody has a cistern. Uh, the, the the cost of cist the cost of of uh, of a cistern of, of a tank to hold water um, runs about uh, about uh, twenty cents a gallon. In the U.S., it's almost a dollar a gallon. So we are we are four to five times more expensive. In and, and it's and it's and it's strictly because we simply don't have a thriving, flourishing commerce in in hydrology this way we, we just we don't think about it you know we've got municipal systems and and um you know we just don't have a thriving economy that way so you know it's unfortunate that that's that that's the case there are some very poor boy ways i i read where a guy just put up some uh some uh, snow fence in a circle and put plastic in it and and put some straw uh just put some straw between the the plastic and the and the fence and just fill that filled that big cycle it was like 50 feet in diameter and filled it with water um as as a poor boy tank and um that was a kind of cool idea um oh yeah that's interesting uh, yeah yeah in other words as, as he filled it as it filled he just he just kept you know punching some straw in and just lifting the lifting the plastic up you know along the edge so that the plastic wouldn't you know wouldn't be cut by the by the fence edge um uh a, a couple things about about the let's deal with the mosquitoes. Um, you know, we have we have I don't know what uh, fifteen ponds now on our farm that we built, and we just keep building every time we get some cash. We build another pond, and we don't have any mosquitoes. Uh, I mean, even in the area, everybody that visits in the night, you know, you don't have any mosquitoes. No, we don't. Well, you know why? Because we've got we've got tons and tons of bats. Bats eat uh, eat mosquitoes like crazy and along with um you know uh, barn swallows purple martins and so i think that the mosquito issue is is simply a um uh it's a manifestation of a lack of ecological diversity in any in any region um the problem is not the mosquitoes the problem is that you don't have enough diversified ecology to handle what the water brought. Now, if you if you develop your uh, surrounding ecology, um, you know, to stimulate the entire the entire uh, spinoff of diversity that 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 better hydrology creates in your area, you know, you will attract the um, the, the collaborating you know the collaborating life the create the collaborating biology that is naturally uh, needed to to balance out and and to encourage that pond i, I was on i was uh, just helping a neighbor recently with his pond and uh of course you know it was all, all sterile our ponds all have you know cat tails and and willows and all sorts of you know uh stuff in them why because we fence out the animals we, we don't let the animals in so the, these guys that use them let the animals get into them they trash them in and, and, and eliminate all that all that side vegetation that is part of that overall uh sheltering ecology you know around the edges where you know where it gets uh, thin and a little bit marshy so uh overhanging trees to put shadow over it 
um, uh, not on the dam. You don't want the dam to be, you don't want the dam to be compromised with big roots, but every place else except the dam can have overshading trees, you know, like water loving trees, willows, sycamores, uh, uh, poplars, things like that that can grow up. And those two then create cavities for bats to live in and, and all that. So, um, you know, the, these things are, these things are, uh, you know, we didn't get where we are in a day. And, you know, biology has its own, its own calendar. It's not mechanical. And so when you start massaging ecology, it doesn't respond as fast as replacing a, a broken bearing in a, in a car wheel. You know, a car wheel messes up and, uh, you know, you take the thing out, you stick in a new bearing and you head on down the road. Uh, but biology is not that way. Biology has its own mind and its own time clock. And, uh, and, and so um, all, of the, all of the balancing players that need to come to the stage in any given ecosystem, those players don't always show up at showtime. Uh, so, <laughs> but you can say it's exponential, you know, though. It might take oh, yes. a little time, but it's yes. exponential. Ab ab it's absolutely exponential. And, uh, and if you have the patience and you keep, uh, you just persevere, then it will, it will eventually, uh, it will eventually balance out. We've yeah, had, very, we've had very good success with ponds that, that leak uh, by putting pigs in them and uh, pigs, pigs will get in there and tromp around and, and, uh, and press that mud kind of like a, uh, like a, like a, a, a lath, you know, a plasterer in your house and they kind of get in there and they uh, wool around and they move around, you know, and they, and they kind of, uh, uh, I mean, pig, pigs can make sand hold water. I mean, that's how good they are. <laughs> so, uh, so, so some, pigs. Are, um... I'm really, I'm really tickled that you're, you're, you're having some success with a, a, a 20th, a 20th of an acre pond is a, is a pretty good sized pond in my view. Uh, I mean, it's, it's way bigger than a swimming pool. And, um, and so if you, if you don't call it a pond and you call it a, 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 a fire abatement hydrant, um, you know, uh, uh, maybe that'll help you with some of the bureaucrats. No, this is not a pond. This is a, this is a fire abatement um, hydrant. And Around uh, these might, parts, they appreciate, you will know, definitely go for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it fortunately, you know, we live further out in the woods and uh, we don't believe in getting any stinking permits or licenses right. that everybody just does. And they really don't get out here. You know, we're surrounded by mountain ranges and in a steep river canyon. But, you know, in our last place, we had a, a pond and it took three years for it to become a thriving ecosystem. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, we had a willow tree that just took off. We had... Um, food cultivation, wild rice, uh, horsetail, cattails, mm -hmm. which are all edible, by the way. So our pond on this property is going to be very substantial, you know, like a whole bunch of swimming pools. And, um, you know, it's going to be part of our, uh, you know, we're different than you. We're more of a, an herbal cultivation and, and, you know, that's more of our specialty. Mm -hmm. So our water system is actually going to be, you know, part of our uh, food and medicine production. Uh, but in our last one, we never had any problem with mosquitoes. We had fish in the pond that ate them. Uh, and because there was so much oxygen that was brought in with the plant life, you know, we weren't talking about a swamp. We were talking about a real aerobic uh, living system. So, uh, yeah, no, no problem on our end with that either. So we're excited about 
you know, what we're doing here with a, a new substantial size pond. And then we are planning on doing multiples all over the place. The only problem we have is, you know, we had big fish in our last pond. Uh, we can't do it here because it becomes a bear magnet. You know, we've got so many bears. So, so we'll, uh, you know, focus more on small species, little mosquito eaters and, and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, you're right. There's, there's no problem as long as you make it a living ecosystem and no different than when you're treating a body, you know, you focus on the ecology. You don't focus on bugs because the bugs are there for uh, our benefit only when you do turn into a stagnant pond. Yeah, yeah, the, the, bu the bugs are not the problem. The bugs are an indicator of whatever's been going on in that ecology. Um, before we leave the pond, let me just uh, encourage folks with one other little idea that, that we've done, and that's a floating garden. So you go down to Lowe's and you get a, you, you, you get a bunch of uh, six inch PVC pipe and you cap the ends, you strap them together in a raft and you make a real simple, uh, uh, you know, a wooden box, board box around that thing, fill it about 12 inches full of, of soil and compost, and you can grow floating gardens on your pond. And that adds to the vegetation, the plants, the plants then the roots can get as wet as they want to be. They will automatically, you know, reach for however wet they want to be, because there's about a, there's about a half an inch, about a half an inch gap between those capped, you know, PVC pipes. And, uh, and, and one of the things that we've found is that stuff that's hard to, to grow unbuggy, you know, like, uh, like cabbage or, uh, or broccoli, cauliflower, uh, you grow that out there in this floating, floating garden, and there's no bugs at all because the bugs can't pass, can't get across the water, and something, you know, eats them as they go across the water, and um, uh, it, it's, it's really, a, it, and you just, you know, you just keep it out there when you want to work on it, you just pull it in with your rope, you know, and and work on it and then you shove it back out there and re-anchor it on the other side it's and it all it offers shade it offers shade for anything that's growing under to cool the water down and all that root structure all those hairs they fill up with little uh snails and all sorts of things and creates an, a, a real high oxygen oxygen aeration zone uh for the rest of the pond so it's a it's a great aerator for the pond as well as growing great vegetables yeah, great idea. And another thing we do is uh, when we start establishing uh, aquatic plants in the pond, we'll put them in burlap. It keeps the, uh, you know, the soil and the root system intact until they have a chance to really establish themselves. So it, it's a good way to get started when you're planting a pond. And, and Joel, could you do bamboo instead of PVC if people are concerned about plastics and stuff? Oh, I... I suppose you could. The main thing is you've got to be able, you've got to have a little space, a little gap between each one of those uh, rods, uh, you know, between each one of those pieces of the raft for the roots to be able to go down and, and get the water. This is, this is not hydroponic. Uh, uh, it, it, it is, it is simply a floating garden. It's, well, it's, it's like, it's like the, you know, what the Spaniards found in Mexico, you know, when they got there in Mexico city and all those floating, those floating reed gardens, it's, it's essentially like that. It's really cool. I love that. So uh, maybe we could segue into um, what we're all looking at in the world here today, where we, uh, a lot of us just want to be left alone and uh, you know, reestablish proper ecology and have healthy bodies and feed ourselves. And, 
And, uh, you know, you're a, a great living example of, of doing that. You know, we're trying to do ourselves on, on the scale that we're doing, creating prototypes of decentralized farms instead of shipping food all over the planet. And just, uh, you know, and here we've already got a lot of folks showing up and, and people kind of copying what we're doing and, and doing it in their little locations. So I think we're off to a good start, but it seems to be a little bit of a, uh, a tenuous situation right now where we're trying to outrun the folks that are trying to stop that. So uh, how are you doing in your part of the world with that? Oh, well, uh, the, the world is nuts. As you know, it's, uh, it's completely, <laughs> it, it's turned into a, you know, a, a psychopath. Uh, and, and so, I mean, what, what, what I see culturally is literally a, um, it, it's a urban, it's an urban to rural tsunami. Uh, the number of people that are bailing out of the urban sector, uh, I think it doesn't matter, you know, where you fall on the political spectrum, uh, that, that when, when a culture gets the jitters, it heads to the country, it heads to the hills. Uh, heading to the hills is, is, is you know, is, is, hand in glove, <laughs> is hand in glove with the jitters, right? And, yeah. and so... Uh, I mean, in our area, we've seen we've seen small acreages, homestead type acreages, you know, uh, five to 10, 15 acres, uh, double in double in price in the last uh, 12 months. It's, it's just incredible. And uh, and so that that's a good thing. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that right when we were wondering, well, who's going to come and, and 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 live and love on this land as, as farmers age out? I mean, you know, we're, we're seeing this massive transfer of agricultural equity. Uh, I mean, uh, the ag econ folks tell us that in the next 15 years, 50% of America's agriculture equity is going to change hands. And so many of us are very concerned about, well, who's going to, in, into whose hands? Is it going to be Bill Gates? Is it going to be, you know, the Chinese, the Saudi Arabians? Is it going to be, you know, uh, Wall Street, Monsanto, Bayer, you know, Cargill? Who, who's going to, whose hands is it going to be? And so, um and so, you know, I am thrilled to see some real serious money uh, pouring into the rural sector, in, into, um, into land ownership with, with a new generation of people that didn't, that didn't go to land grant colleges, didn't major in agriculture and, and come out indoctrinated with factory farming and chemical farming. Uh, these are folks who, who are coming to this brand new and they're looking to people like us to steer them and shepherd them because, because from, from an ecology standpoint, they are far more aligned with us than they are with, with, with Tyson, Purdue and Cargill. And so that's, that's a, that's a very exciting development. And, um, and we just need to, you know, we just need to stay uh, out there available, encouraging, inspiring, and, uh, and, 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 giving help when we can, you know, um, to steer these folks into success and not uh, frustration and depression, you know, as well as I do, there's a lot of ways to lose money on a farm, uh, even a very, very small <laughs> farm. You can, you, can, you can lose a lot of money real quick. And so uh, part of our, I think our responsibility now, those of us old geezers that have, that have traveled this road before is to hold the hand of all these uh, these, these urban migrants and, um, you know, and, and encourage them uh, to, you know, to be, uh, to be successful. 
Yeah. And what you're doing there, you know, we're doing similar is we're not just farming, but we're establishing actual, you know, living situations where people can stay, uh, where people can learn. And uh, all the people that are finding us are coming from urban environments, but they're not at all interested in factory farms. They just want to survive. And they also want to do a, a good turn on the land as well. So they're more interested in permaculture and biodynamics and everything we're talking about. So that's very encouraging to me too. And, you know, it's happening in every endeavor. I mean, just our little talk here today, you know, we're just a little small podcast, but how many tens of thousands of people are doing the same thing? And uh, they're all turning to, you know, viewerships like this instead of turning on the television. So it's, uh, you know, I really see the tide turning myself. It's the great, yes. it's the great decentralization movement going on right now. I and mean, what's beautiful about it is it's also uh, in collaboration with community development. It's not just people fractional fractioning off into their own little pod, but people are seeking community more than ever, probably due to lockdowns and all the stuff going on. Um, with the overreach of the government. And so not only do we have decentralization, but that in conjunction with stuff like permaculture and community. So the, yes, the urban hipsters are coming to farm, but it's a, a time that they can because never before have resources been so accessible to learn thanks to the internet, right? So it's a really fascinating time to watch this unfold. Yeah, it, it sure is. And, and so you used the word community there, uh, which, of course, is one of the foundations of resilience. Uh, um, you know, we, we have I, I just I keep mentioning this because I find it so fascinating. I read a report just lately where somebody had measured the uh, or, or had counted the number of times in British. Par so this is British, the British Parliament uh, in the last 10 years. How many times did they use the word efficient or efficiency? versus the word resilient or resiliency. And what they found was that in the last five years, the number of times they've used efficient or efficiency has dropped by half. And the number of times they've used resilient and resiliency has doubled. So there's, a, there's, there's this, this, this quantum difference between the use of these terms. And if, boy, yeah, I mean, if that's British parliament uh, moving, from the moving from thinking efficiency to resiliency, uh, that's a that's a harbinger of, of good thinking because all of us that have been in this movement, you know, we get we um, we get told that well you can't feed the world this way. We get told uh, that that your prices are too high. This is this is an elitist movement. Uh, I mean, you know, name, right? Name the thing, um, and 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 here we are. You know, those chickens are coming home to roost now. Uh, people are are intuitively understanding, you know what, I want to be somewhere where in my life, in my life, I have a relationship, both personally and, and, and proximately, you know, geographically, approximately, I want to have a relationship with someone who knows how to grow things, build things, and fix things. And if I, if I surround my, my uh, situation, my context, with people who know how to grow things, build things, and fix things, you know, we 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 won't be spared hardship, mainly maybe, but perhaps we will punch through if the wheels come off and and stuff goes wonky. Um, we'll we'll at least have a chance of being the last the last group standing, and there's a bit of 
there's a bit of consolation at least <laughs> if if you think you're going to be the last the last one standing i remember um uh, what was it about seven years ago you know when when um fuel prices spiked so high and goodness i was speaking all over at these uh peak oil these peak oil conferences man everybody's whoo we're this this is it you know we're we're done <laughs> and um and so a report came across my desk and said the average farm, 50% of their expenses are for fuel on the average farm in America. 50% of their expenses are fuel. And I just, I just thought, man, that's, that's unbelievable. This doesn't seem possible. And so I, um, I did an audit on, on our own situation. Remember now we're running, you know, two, two full-time delivery trucks into the city. Uh, so I, I put all that fuel in. Uh, you know our whole fuel thing and it turned out that that our fuel expense on our farm was only five percent now you know do, do did i want diesel to go to 12 bucks a gallon no i didn't but but it, it occurred to me man if we're only five percent and the average farm is 50 percent we it occurred to me diesel could go to 10 or 12 bucks a gallon and we'd still survive um and and so there, there is some consolation you know just emotionally and mentally in knowing, well, at least we'll be the last guy standing. And what you hope is that by the time you're the last guy standing, some clever, you know, clever engineer has figured out, you know, hydrogen or, you know, uh, something else and, and you're, or, or the whole system changes, you know. Uh, well, and is that for, when you say delivery, is that going to market? You mean, Joel, taking to market? Uh, that that's going to our, our, uh, our metropolitan customers that are. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. So here's a solution that doesn't even have to do with the fuel. For example, we had Rob Reiner on from crop swap on the summit and what they're doing, and he's going beyond that, but what they're do, what I'm going to say right now, they're going to decentralize it more, but they're using crowdfunding and decentralization through technology for deliver, helping farms deliver to the market without having to spend that money yourself. By them being the middleman through the basically connecting the customers directly to the farm, they then will go ahead and transport for you and take that expense away from the farm. And that isn't even tackling it. Go ahead, Bear. Mike, I I expect, Mike, also that they aren't talking about shipping uh, apples from Argentina to California. No, it's locavore based. So the idea is you connect with your local farms based on your area. And then, and the whole point of Rob's mission is to get people into farming and by, by cutting out all these expenses and by, by providing a marketplace that is already catered to what you're growing. And they want to decentralize this now and not even be crop swap anymore. They're doing a whole different thing and they're working um, with Molly at Sola Heart Farm. I don't know if you know who Molly is, uh, uh, Joel, but she was on the summit too. I highly recommend people checking out that uh, talk I did with them because it's really inspiring and it's permaculture based. It's, it's decentralization and it's using technology to our benefit without even having to tackle the energy issue yet. And I know we do need to tackle the energy issue, but we can also get creative in how we work together and connect those still in the cities, in the food deserts, directly to their farmer. So I just wanted to throw that out there because this is these are exciting solutions. Oh, oh absolutely. The, the 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 level of innovation going into uh, into uh, collaborative distribution platforms right now is is astounding. I mean, I know of several, including crop crop swap, but mm-hmm. there there are numerous ones that are developing and uh and whether they're whether they're kind of old school like us where we 
where we collaborate with about 12 farmers in the area and everybody goes on our, our we happen to have the truck. So it, it, they all nice. go on our nice. truck um, or, or, or whether it's a, it's an entirely, you know, a different platform. Uh, I, I don't care, but yeah, this, this space, you know, and, and what's, what's really uh, cool to me is that, uh, that with, with the COVID uh, with the new COVID protocols in, in big business, uh, I think people don't realize just how much in a, in a great big organization, you know, in a great big bureaucratic organization, just how much this this paranoia, this COVID paranoia, and the new human resource regulation uh, element has just has just slowed down the the pace of work. Uh, I mean, it, it 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 has created huge costs. This really came home to me about three weeks ago when one of my one of my crew came in and uh, they said, hey, did you know that um, that uh, sirloin steak is down at Costco for uh, $16 a pound in our in our price here at the at the farm is $9 a pound. And it just struck me. Great goodness alive. You mean you mean we are seven dollars a pound lower than Costco and we're supposed to be the elitist, you know, but <laughs> yeah. And it's it struck me that what's happening is these big businesses are aircraft carriers. Here we are in in this in this extremely uh, um, uh, malleable, uh, uh, changing, changing. You know, there's a, there's a business book out. It's it's not the big that it's not the big that eats the small. It's the fast that eats the slow. And and when when things are ch- when when things are changing as rapidly as they are right now through technology, regulations, litigation, uh, uh, fear, paranoia. You want to be a speedboat. You don't want to be an aircraft carrier. You want to be a speedboat. And so all of us that are smaller in this space that are speedboats, we're nimble. We're fast. We can make adjustments. I don't wake up in the morning wonder, I mean, there's, there's whatever, 25 of us here at the farm that earn our living here at Polyface. I don't wake up in the morning and wonder, oh man, I wonder if somebody's going to, going to call for a union vote. I wonder if somebody's going to call OSHA <laughs> and, 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 and turn me in for not having the right mask policy on, on quadrant five, you know, I, I don't get up, <laughs> but, but trust me, big, big business executives do. They wake up every morning, uh, 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 concerned about who's going to complain, who's going to file a, 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 an agreement. What pronouns are right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all of that. Okay. And, and, and so I, I think, I think people have a hard time wrapping their heads right now around, around the, the inefficiencies, these, it, it's kind of like, you know, an engine be carbon on the valves, right? It's, it, it's like gunk. It's like gunk that gets into that large business that, that is absolutely grinding it into a place of inefficiency where, where, where outfits like us can spin circles around them, adjust and service people. We don't have, you know, our, our supply chain is, is a straight pipe. <laughs> I mean, you call us, we get it to you, right? I mean, it's, it, we're not waiting on China. We're not waiting on, on containers to be unloaded in, in Los Angeles. And so, uh, so it's really, I, I'm just, I just couldn't be more excited about uh, the, I mean, I just had a billionaire contact me. Uh, he's heard my, my uh, song and dance about, we need to have a, an authentic competitor to McDonald's. Let's start a, a pasture-based, a fat pasture-based uh, hamburger franchise that goes head to head with McDonald's. You know, he called me, he said, Hey, I'm in, I'm in, I'll give you $2 million to start this thing. The fact is that right now, 
a very small outfit starting would be more, uh, almost more efficient than McDonald's. It, it's hard to wrap your head around, okay? But but we're moving into that space. They're digging and, their own uh, grave, Joel. Is and, that what you're saying? They're digging yeah, their own grave. Yeah, there are. And, 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 yeah. I was just going to say in our operation, we're being affected inversely by the slowdown. The slower it gets out down there, we're just speeding up here and can hardly keep up with it. And it sounds like you're definitely experiencing the same thing there. Yeah, we are. We are. We're definitely experiencing the same thing. And 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 all of this, uh, all of this supply chain uh, jitters, is is making people start to think about. Well, maybe maybe I better buy a, a freezer and get a half a beef and not just you know get T-bone steaks when I want them. Maybe I need to buy uh, two bushels of apples and and can apple applesauce to put in my pantry uh, rather than relying on you know on uh, on on apples down at Kroger's. Uh, uh, apple juice, apple, whatever, applesauce down at Kroger's or from, from uh, Argentina. So, so what's happened, what's happened is that there is a growing awareness of the fragility of the fragility of the global supply chain, the, the, the global issues coming on and a, 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 a grinding down and in, an inherent, an inherent uh, um, uh, slowdown in the productivity, the capacity of the large bureaucratic outfits. And, um, and if the government would just get out of the way, uh, those of us running speedboats could, um, you know, we can service all that. Uh, we, don't, we don't need to get bigger. We just need to get more of us. So, so you know, there, there's two ways to scale. One way to scale is with uh, empire building centralization. The other way to scale is simply with diversified duplication. And uh, I'm a big believer in scale by diversified duplication. And if we if we get, you know, um, uh, 500,000 of us out here like us and you, um, you know, we, we can meet that demand, we can supply it. And we don't need any of the, you know, we don't, we don't need a factory farm in the world. We just don't need it. Joel, I need to connect you. Do, are you familiar with Jim Gale? Have you talked to him? Do you know him? Jim Gale, uh, Food Forest Abundance. Check them out. That's his exact model. They basically have an open source model allowing people to go into business, spreading food forests all around the world. And it's a brilliant model because it's exactly what you just said. It's repeating. It's repeatable. It's decentralized, and it's profitable. It's leading to abundance and prosperity, and it's based on permaculture. And it's it's bringing diversity and resilience. Right. Uh, it was one of my favorite talks from the event. And the right. guy is full of energy, and they're crushing it. And they're bringing big business people over to run their their international organization because even the big business people are really smart. Are seeing that what you're exactly saying: being agile, being being fast, being um, you know open source, and and yeah. ability to cross into other uh, avenues um, is the future versus this like old monster kind of solid, very structured board member stock focused kind of entity, which seems to be dying out. It's the old dinosaur that globalism is dead. I think globalism is dead. So check them out. Yeah, Gale, a lot of people are, Go ahead, Bear. Sorry. Yeah. And I was just going to comment. A lot of people are wringing their hands about all the problems and the, the sociopaths in the world, but I think we've got them right where we want them. Yeah, totally. 
Well, you know, the other the other bet the other wonderful gift with the whole COVID nonsense was that a lot of people stopped going to the grocery store because one, they didn't want to wear a mask, they didn't want to deal with the stress and anxiety of it. So what we've been telling people is connect with your farmer, mm. go to your farmer's markets, and it's better that you're gonna you're gonna be healthier, you're gonna do better for your community, and you're gonna um just overall pay less, you know? So it's like a win-win-win all around. Yeah, well, what what a side you know a side thread of this that was occurring long before COVID ever happened, a side thread of this was simply the competitiveness of of um, the, the competitiveness of contactless retail versus the cumbersomeness of in person retail. So what's happened uh, over the course of of the last you know ten years. Um, I mean, you know, we're, our farm is now, you know, we're now shipping, we're now shipping nationally and it's just growing, you know, gangbusters. And, and, um, and, and, you know, what's funny is, you know, we ship somewhere to, you know, far away and they say, well, I've never had food like this before. I wonder if somebody locally is doing this and we're happy to seed, you know, that, that encouragement to local, uh, you know, local use. Um, I mean, most of our sales are very much, we're very much a local, uh, a, a local place, but, um, but, but that is a, that is a new, that is a new option. And, um, and, and so the, the cost of brick and mortar, the cost of brick and mortar public interface to make sure that you got the snow off of the sidewalk in time, you got the light bulb changed in the back, you know, aisle 43 going to the back bathrooms, got that changed in time. The, the, the cost of the cashiers, the cost of stocking the shelves, of, of, of keeping the banana peels off the floor and spills off the floor and the litigation, all, all that cost of physical bricks and mortar interface has escalated dramatically in the last 10 to 20 years, while the cost of distribution has plummeted through you know, FedEx, UPS, and logistics, through, through, through logistics technology. That has plummeted. And so what happened, what's happened is that the, the retail interface, the competitiveness, the competitiveness of, of alternative retail interface and, and the ability of electronic aggregation where you, 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 can, you can aggregate product electronically from many different places, but it can all be presented on one shopping cart. Um, that electronic aggregation has completely revolutionized that retail interface in a competitive way versus the cumberness of the bricks and mortar and 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 that that's a that's an absolutely brand new uh playing field literally in the last 10 years that is i think that is giving uh those of us who are maybe you know in in very rural areas where there's not a population base around and and, and that kind of thing they're giving it's giving us access to markets that we never would have imagined uh not very long ago it's, it's very it's very cool yeah, and that's an amazing point because I think the predicament we're still in is because a large portion of the population has this deep-seated um, sense of dependency. And so maybe we could kind of round things back full circle in our discussion today with, um, you know, what you feel uh, happens to an individual's psychology when they get reconnected to the land and how that connection really breeds um, a sense of freedom and independence. Yeah, well, uh, that's great. I, I think when people start um, making these intentional decisions, um, 
what happens is that they they get affirmed deep in their soul. They get affirmed as a participant in a, a participant in in the thing, <laughs> you know, in, in in the big thing. So many people uh, feel like, well, you know, it's too big for me. What doesn't matter what I do. I, I, you know, doesn't make any difference, that sort of thing. And I always tell people, look, you know, I've never, I've never met a frog, a frog sitting on the edge of a pond, never wake, make, wakes <laughs> up in the morning and says, you know what? I, I just don't think I'm going to participate today. I'm just going to, I'm just going to take the day off and not participate. And, 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 and people, you know, people want to feel needed. They want to feel affirmed, important. Uh, um, and, and as participants, in something bigger than themselves. And if, and if healing the planet is not bigger than yourself, I don't know what is. And so to be able to, to appreciate that I, I can step into that space and be a healing participant in the culture, the, the planet, the ecology for my grandchildren, that, that is an ultimately hopeful and helpful spirit attitude. And, and if we can, can, if we can bring our customers, our, our, our clients, our collaborators to that point of vision and mission, it, ha, it, ha, it works, it, it acts as a salve, a, a salve, a balm on the dysfunction and the raw edges of a dysfunctional society. Love that. Yeah. And if, if we don't mind just getting a little bit more into the woo-woo, which is real science to me. Um, you know, when you're out there every single day, there's a real palpable communication that occurs between yourself and other life forms. And that also cultivates, you know, our perceptive bandwidth into the realm of our creator and probably why we're here in the first place. And I think when you tune in on that level, then all of the uh, psychopathy that we see out there is going to disappear as well. Because when you're in that frame of mind, that, that, that state of resonance, it just doesn't occur to you to harm other life forms, let alone, you know, your fellow mankind. Well, probably the, the, sing, the single most important foundational concept for the human mind is to realize that I'm part of something bigger than me. And we live in an incredibly uh, indulgent, indulgent society. Uh, uh, you know, we've, well, we, we could go off on a long rabbit trail on this, but, 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 you know, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, kids, kids worked interactively uh, with adults. Uh, you know, we delivered papers, we chopped wood, we, we helped, uh, helped can green beans. We, you know, we pulled weeds, we, uh, we, we did these things. And today we literally have a generation growing up that's that's never that's never had to do chores. That, that's never had all they've done is, is is move their fingers around on a on a screen, and and so uh, that's one reason I'm such a huge advocate of of children and gardening. I don't you know school gardens, home gardens. I don't care, but children and gardening because because there is a a realism. Um, there is a a mystery. And a realism that happens. So, you know, when you're out growing that tomato plant, if that tomato plant doesn't survive, you don't just sit back for 30 seconds and wait for the game of life to give you a new tomato plant. 
you know, it, it dies and, and it, it doesn't come back. You know, it's done. It's not like the video game that replaces your car, replaces your, you know, your, your bad guy, your good guy, your gun, your whatever. And, and so, and so these kids are growing up in this fantasy world. And I, I think that, I think that, that anchoring and connecting to our, our ecological womb, our, our ecological umbilical, um, it, it is, is, is the starting point of understanding. It's not all about me. And, and, and we need, we need a, uh, a generation now um, that, that, they don't know they even need this yet, <laughs> but, but trust me, they do. They need to know that there's, there's a bigger thing out here than, than them. Uh, and, and I think that, that as we, as we connect with our food, with the land, with our health and understand that it, there is something bigger than me, it's the beginning of common sense reason and, and actually, actually, uh, sacrificial service to one another rather than, you know, throwing gasoline on, on hate, vengeance and, and, and retribution. Um, but to understand I, I, I'm a piece of a bigger thing and I have the privilege and honor to either be healing or hurtful as a participant in that bigger, in, in that bigger thing. Yeah. And to tie it, tie it back real quick to agrarianism, it's kind of an answer for a lot of this stuff. And it leads, you know, we're looking at the, I think, the end days of pure materialism, which, of course, as an American, we understand was like the, at the heart of a lot, the last, I don't know how many decades, which is really built upon debt and built upon an inflationary economic system. And when we get back to inherently natural systems, which are deflationary, then our time gets longer. We look to the future and we see what's more important, which isn't hurry up, get on this app and do this and run to the movies and do this. No, we look towards the future and we look towards what's important. We get grounded in spirit. We get grounded in, in, in family <laughs> and agrarianism is a wonderful way to just bring that all into the family structure right away. And it's, as we said earlier, a lot of families are leaving the city to start farms or homesteads and that's agrarianism. So I think it's a, a really exciting time to see that happening and unfolding. And I try to get my kids' hands in the dirt every day that I can and get them off those screens because you're right, Joel, there's nothing like a kid picking a, a pea that he grew himself and seeing the pleasure of having yes. that ending the loop, right? Like from planning it to eating it and getting the sustenance, there is a, something you see in their eyes where they get it. It clicks. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yes. Magic. Yeah, and Joel, uh, uh, just just to finalize, you know, I want to honor your time here today with us. And um, so we want to hear some final thoughts from you and also share your information, uh, you know, about your contacts and your website. Uh, one final comment I had is last week um, we had a, a wonderful guest on uh, Renette Senum, who is running for governor of California. And her whole campaign is based on the seven generation principle. And we talked about having new economic indexes that are not based on um, things that are actually destroying our planet, but based on um, indexes or criteria that measure how much we are giving back to future generations. So 
also through her, I was encouraged that uh, we're actually seeing a new breed of not politician, but statesmen statesmen uh, emerge. So we're we're seeing it on all fronts here. So um, if you could just uh, maybe any thoughts on that, and also uh, just share your final information and how people can find you. Sure. Well, that that, that sounds almost like. Um like gross domestic happiness, you know, from Bhutan. <laughs> uh, I, I've always said that. She I, that actually I, brought up Bhutan on the uh, podcast. Yeah, good, good. Well, um, you know, I, I've, I've, I've often said that a culture that can't, that can't differentiate between assets and liabilities ecologically and socially um, uh, is doomed to fail. You know, if I go out here and pollute the river, um, the cost of cleanup is actually a positive GDP because, you know, you got to employ people, you got to uh, buy energy to get trucks out here, you got to clean it up. Wow, you know, this if you build a new juvenile detention center, you know, all that concrete, that's positive GDP, all the employees, all the, you know, the, 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 the con, anyway, you get where I'm going. And, 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 and here, here, you know, um, uh, all of those, <laughs> you know, those kinds of things should be, um, negatives on gross domestic product. Oh, we build another jail. Ooh, that, you know, that comes off the gross domestic product. That's negative. You know, uh, you know, we, uh, the divorce rate went up. Oh, oh, we, we, we need more, we need more, uh, psychiatrists. No, that's negative. You know, they don't add anything to the culture. Uh, we need more tomato growers, you know? And, uh, and so, uh, so it's just, a, and I, I look, I don't have answers. I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying that, that we have not, for all of our creativeness, we have not figured out a way to differentiate between cultural asset and liability. And, and if you can't do that, you're not going to make wise decisions. And so, uh, so I deeply appreciate the, the actual mathematical formulas. I'm serious of the, the gross domestic happiness model that Bhutan uh, put together. It's, if, you, if you look into it, it's truly, truly, it might not be the, the answer for everything. But it is truly at least somebody's thinking. At least somebody's thinking about how do you measure cultural flourishing as opposed to cultural floundering, and and if, and if we can if we can dissect that and actually capture it, uh, it would be really cool. So people can get a hold of me through our, you know our website Polyface Farms, um, P O L Y F A C E. If you just type in about if you get to about P O L Y, it'll probably pop up, um, and it has uh, you know my speaking arrangements. It has you know uh, um, our our you know our statement of purpose, our values. Um, you know, uh, if you want to get our stuff, you can get our stuff uh, from from swag to you know swag to sustenance, <laughs> and and uh, um, <laughs> and keep up with what I've done. Um, you're you're welcome to do that. Polyface Farms dot com. Amazing. Well, this has been great, uh, Joel. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I couldn't think of a better way to swing into the Christmas season and you have a Merry Christmas and all your loved ones the best and let's stay connected here. That's great. Thank you all for having me on. It's an honor and a, and a true delight to be with you. Just congratulations. My hat's off to, um, to what you, what you guys are, are persevering to do and um, congratulations on your success. And yes, Merry Christmas and happy new year to you as well. Blessings. Blessings come, to you, Joel. Come see us. Come, oh. come see us when you get East. We'd love to. Love to. 
Hey guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Please share with your friends and family. This is important information to get out. Go follow Joel. Go buy his books. They are really great. I enjoy your books, Joel. Uh, and um, like we always end the show, get outside, get your hands dirt, go grow something, go go for a hike. Mother Nature is our best teacher. She's here for us. We're, we're uh, there for her. So we love you guys and we have a Merry Christmas. Happy uh, New Year. We might be back there for uh, before New Year's. We'll we'll announce that to the community shortly if we're going to do a special in-house alpha cast. Love you guys. Later.